Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thank you for listening. Given all the publicity and the attitude changes towards tobacco use over the last decade or two, there are still many, many people who continue to smoke. It just remains a very big public health problem. Dr. Brian King is Deputy Director for Research, Translation, in the Office on Smoking and Health with the United States Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And he is here with us today to talk about the ongoing extent of the problem and what efforts are underway to control it. Dr. King, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. I've spent a fair amount of time looking at the CDC website, and it's a great source of good information, and I do recommend people look at it. It's uh, www.cdc.gov slash tobacco. Very good place to get some good background information. Okay, let's begin. It's a big problem, as we both know. How effective have the efforts been in the last decade or two to get people to stop smoking or to start smoking less? So we've made considerable progress in the United States in terms of of reducing smoking rates among both youth and adults. And those declines have occurred over the past 50 years. In 1964, the Surgeon General first uh, sounded the alarm on the adverse effects of smoking. And since that time, we've had over 30 Surgeon General's reports documenting the adverse health effects of smoking. And this has really resulted in, in great momentum in terms of not only implementing the interventions we know work to prevent and reduce tobacco use, but also uh, reducing cigarette smoking and other forms of tobacco use. And even in the past 10 years alone, we've seen great progress. Smoking has declined from about over 40% percent among adults back in the 60s down to 15 percent in 2015, which were record lows. Similarly, among youth, rates of cigarette smoking were in the 30s in the mid-1990s, and now we're down to less than 10 percent of high school students currently smoke cigarettes. However, we still have a lot of work to do. The good news is that we know what works. We have the evidence-based interventions, but we just need to implement them and ensure that we continue to achieve these declines in not only cigarette smoking, but also other forms of tobacco use. It's really important to remember that although we've made progress in reducing cigarette smoking, the tobacco landscape has continued to evolve and diversify, and there's new products such as hookah and e-cigarettes, and those are particularly popular among youth. And so we don't want to be playing a game of a public health whack-a-mole, if you will, where we see declines in cigarette smoking but allow other forms of tobacco use to increase. So overall, the momentum is good. We've made considerable progress. We know what works, but we need to continue to implement those interventions and apply them to the diversity of tobacco products as that landscape continues to change. Do the people that you address, are you trying to teach them about the dangers of it? Are they picking up that there really is a medical danger to using tobacco? Are they getting the core message? I'm pleased to hear that the frequency and the prevalence rather is down, but what seems to be catching their attention? Why is it going down a little bit and what are your challenges? Certainly noted by the the majority of the population that cigarette smoking is dangerous. We know that it's the leading cause of preventable disease and death in this country and it causes over 12 forms of cancer and a variety of other adverse health effects, essentially harming every organ of the body. So over the years, we've made a lot of great progress in terms of educating the public about those dangers. But the important thing to remember is that these products contain nicotine, which is is highly addictive. In the late 80s, the Surgeon General noted that nicotine may be more addictive than heroin and cocaine. So it's certainly something that is causing people to be highly addicted to these products and to continue to use them over time. So it's tough to quit, but we know that you can quit through evidence-based interventions, including things like the nicotine patch and, and nicotine gum. So over time, we've made 
great progress in terms of allowing these resources and medications to, to reach the population, but there's still a lot of forces that are working against us, and there's a lot of things that are heavily influencing people to use these products besides the addiction. Um, they're available in a variety of flavors, certain tobacco products, and they're also heavily advertised through a variety of media, and that's been compounded by the advertising on the internet and social media in recent years. So although we've made a lot of great progress in terms of reducing smoking, there's still a lot of forces working against us. When the tobacco industry continues to spend over a million dollars every hour in this country to advertise and promote their products and continue a consumer base. That's a lot of money. It is. That's a lot of money. What then happens, sir, if there is a, a standard, shall we say, sequence of events that changes a non-smoker into a smoker? One thing we do know is that the vast majority of adult smokers begin before the age of 18. About 9 in 10 adult smokers begin before the age of 18, and about 99% begin before young adulthood, before the age of 26. So we know that this is really a critical area for intervention. If we can prevent the startup of tobacco use and youth in young adulthood, we could potentially prevent an entire generation of tobacco and nicotine-addicted youth. So this is really the foremost important demographic in terms of prevention and where most people are transitioning and starting. So a lot of our comprehensive tobacco control efforts really focus among this youth and young adult demographic and the interventions that are particularly effective to prevent use. And those include things like price increases. We know the higher the price, the, the lower the consumption, and that's particularly effective among youth. Policies such as smoke-free laws that can help denormalize the use of these behaviors in public, particularly for youth and young adults. These are the types of interventions and efforts that are very effective in helping to change youth and young adult attitudes and prevent them from starting to smoke to begin with, because that's really where the transition occurs. Once they're influenced by all the, the advertising and flavors, and once they try the products and they're addicted to nicotine, that can be a very problematic through adulthood in terms of health effects. That early intervention is really key, and that's the period where most people transition into tobacco use. In terms of school-based interventions, we know that they can be uh, helpful, but not in and of themselves. So school-based education on the adverse effects of tobacco use and other illicit substances is helpful as part of a, a coordinated uh, program that includes other population-based interventions and strategies. So it's one egg in the basket, but it's not the only intervention that we, we should use in terms of preventing tobacco use and other substances. How coexistent? Are other conditions, such as drinking, psychiatric conditions, anxiety, depression, marijuana use, do you see them blending into each other? Is that part of your challenge? Yes, it certainly is. There's a lot of different public health uh, risk factors that are common across people, and those include cigarette smoking and, and other substances. Alcohol is probably the most prominent. And we know that many drinkers crave the stimulant effects of nicotine, which helps to affect the sleepiness or, or depressant effect that alcohol induces. So scientists are still trying to figure out what the exact relationship is between alcohol um, and particularly nicotine addiction, but there's been some very good animal models over the years which have really shown that nicotine can affect the parts of the brain that are associated with reflexes, learning, and attention. So people who are drinking frequently crave that stimulant factor from nicotine to help counteract 
depressant effects of alcohol. And we also know that nicotine can enhance the pleasurable effects of alcohol, further adding to that alcohol high and increasing your desire to drink more. So there's certainly both uh, physiologic similarities between those two risk factors, but there's also environmental factors where people are frequently using both in the same environment, such as a bar or restaurant or social engagement. When you're in a bar or restaurant, and if there is smoking in the restaurant, there's the whole issue of secondhand smoke. That's just a huge issue. I mean, Yes, certainly. And, uh, you know, the bottom line is that secondhand smoke kills an estimated 41,000 Americans each year. And in terms of health effects, it causes uh, lung cancer and heart disease among adults as well as a variety of effects in in kids, including ear infections, more severe asthma, and even sudden infant death syndrome. So the science is clear that there's no risk-free level of secondhand smoke, but we've made great progress. Back in the late 80s, about 90% of the U.S. population was exposed to secondhand smoke. The more recent data show that it's about 20 to 25% of the population continues to be exposed. Cut in about a third over the past 25 years, primarily been through the implementation of comprehensive smoke-free laws in public areas, such as work sites, restaurants, and bars. And we currently have about 60% of the population that's covered by those types of laws, which we know work to protect people from secondhand smoke. But we still have several states, over 20, that do not have statewide laws that protect people from secondhand smoke in indoor public areas. Where I live in Florida, you can people cannot smoke in a restaurant, but there are still many states that allow it? Yeah, there's currently 27 states in the District of Columbia that have a comprehensive law that prohibits smoking in all indoor areas of work sites, restaurants, and bars, but several of them have exemptions, such as bars, so it's not a comprehensive policy, or they allow smoking at certain times, such as uh, restricting to people over age of 18 so that youth aren't exposed, but you can still allow it inside the environment as long as the youth are not present. So there's a lot of loopholes and exemptions in these policies, but currently there's 27 states in the District of Columbia that have a, a comprehensive law. That's interesting. I thought it would be 100%, frankly. I must tell you. We certainly have a, a long way to go, particularly considering we've known the science on secondhand smoke for decades. 1986, Surgeon General Coop was the first to sound the alarm. That was a long time ago, 30 years ago, and we're still still working on the issue of secondhand smoke. So good progress, but there's still about 58 million Americans that are exposed to secondhand smoke each year. What about culture groups? Is there any breakdown? Do you see it in religious backgrounds, in uh, socioeconomic backgrounds, people immigrate? Is there any sense of that, or is it pretty much across all groups? Yeah, in terms of cigarette smoking, we collect data annually from what's called the National Health Interview Survey, and a survey that we've been conducting in the U.S. government since 1965. And back in 1965, saw about 40% of the population smoke, and now the more recent data is about 15%, which equates to about 36 million adults. So we've seen declines, but those declines have not been consistent across population groups, and there's certain groups that have higher levels of cigarette smoking. Traditionally, males have higher rates than females. We know that younger and middle-aged adults tend to smoke more than older adults, primarily because the older adults are dying already from smoking attributable disease. They're removed from the estimates because of the effects of, of smoking. We do see higher rates among certain race ethnicities, particularly American Indians and Alaska Natives have considerably higher rates of smoking than the general population, and there are about over 30% of them smoke cigarettes, and that's compared to about 15-16% among non-Hispanic white adults. There's also marked 
variation by different regions. We know that it's particularly higher in the south, the Midwest, compared to the west and northeast. And there's also marked socioeconomic differences in smoking. Smoking is particularly high among those who have lower income and those who have lower education and those who are unemployed or employed in service-related occupations and construction and various outdoor employment occupations. Is there any sense of why socioeconomic groups are so likely to smoke more than others? Do we have any data to that effect? The current data suggests it's probably a multiple different things that are contributing. You know, one is education on the adverse effects of smoking and just simply education on the harms of smoking. Although most people are aware and there's misperceptions by people about the, the harms and that maybe they don't believe that it's harmful if they smoke just a few cigarettes a day or a few times a week. There's also selective targeting by the tobacco industry to promote these products. There's literature in the, the scientific journals documenting that advertising for these products has been selectively targeted, particularly in lower socioeconomic neighborhoods, and that the industry has taken efforts to reduce the, the price of these products to make them more affordable to lower-income populations. And so these are, are really uh, compounded by the fact that lower-income populations also have lower access to proven cessation resources in terms of both healthcare access as well as counseling and, and proven medications that we know work to help people quit. So the fact that they're being targeted by the industry and the products are being made easier to use is, is compounded by the fact that they have less access to the, these proven interventions, which ultimately results in the higher rates of use. It raises the question, because clearly the medical concerns with tobacco use, that's no longer a discussion. We know that it, it exists. So it's a public health issue. And yet the government doesn't seem to be able to just stop it. I would imagine that's incredibly frustrating for you because as I'm listening to you and hearing about the industry targeting the lower socioeconomic groups, it's going to end up costing society more money if these people get cancer and then they end up on Medicare and, we, and Medicare has to pick up the costs of all their medical treatments. It doesn't seem like it's in balance yet. I, I could imagine it's all terribly frustrating to you. Yes. So the one luxury that we have for tobacco prevention and control is that we have over a half century of science and information, and we know what works. We just have to implement it. And unfortunately, that's not what's occurring. And that's the result of a variety of reasons. And we do know that tobacco use is the leading cause of preventable disease and deaths in this country, and it costs a lot of money. And that's borne by society. Over $300 billion per year in the United States is borne as a result of smoking attributable health care, as well as lost productivity from people who die as a result of smoking-related disease. $300 billion with a B dollars per year. And a sizable proportion of this is borne through government assistance programs treating smokers, including Medicare and Medicaid. And so there is certainly a large amount of dollars that society is paying for through one way or another. We do know what works to help prevent it, but unfortunately that momentum has not been consistent across the country, particularly at the state level. There's certain states that have done better in terms of of implementing those interventions we know work, such as tobacco price increases, smoke-free policies, targeting mass media campaigns, and enhanced cessation acts. But there's others, particularly in the Midwest and South, which have not implemented those interventions, and it's no surprise that they have higher rates of smoking. Interesting. Does it tend to run in families? As a psychiatrist, we always look at family histories. Did your mother drink, your father drink, someone else drink, and there's a depression and so on. Is there any data to say that it runs in families? And I guess the real question there is, if it does run in families, is it just a lifestyle issue or is it a biological propensity? 
There's a variety of data that's emerged over the years. A lot of this has been in, used in animal models. The bottom line is nicotine, which is, is highly addictive. So that's the primary influence. So regardless of the individual or their familial history, both genetic or environmental, we're dealing with a highly addictive drug that when it's exposed to the user can lead to a lifetime addiction. But we do have some genetic studies that have been uh, conducted over the years that show that some people may have a higher propensity or likelihood to become addicted or to use tobacco product as a result of the nicotine. But we also know that environment plays a very strong role. And there's studies noting that kids who use tobacco were more likely to have adults who use tobacco products. And people who work in certain occupations or environments, such as the hospitality industry, where these types of behaviors are more commonplace, are more likely to use these products. So it's ultimately a combination of both. The environmental factors ultimately play a very key role. And so we know that there's interventions that are effective in terms of addressing those environmental factors. And so if we can influence those, implement them, and we'll see that effect. And I would imagine also just need more funding. So we're severely underfunded in terms of tobacco prevention control. As the tobacco industry is outspending prevention in this country 20 to 1. So it's about a million dollars an hour in terms of advertising. And uh, the CDC recommends about $3.3 billion be spent annually across all states on tobacco prevention control. And currently, the states are spending less than 15% of that. And it's not because the dollars aren't there. Between federal size taxes of master settlement agreement payments, the states are getting in excess of, of $25 billion billion dollars per year, but it's not being used for tobacco prevention control. Frequently, it's being used to fill potholes and, and address other factors because it's a guaranteed revenue source as opposed to address effects of tobacco use in the respective state population. Tell me more about the CDC and how they got involved. I think everyone for a long time thought that the CDC is involved when there is a viral epidemic or the Zika virus, and it's always a little bit after the fact. But this is very proactive. I'm delighted to hear it. Tell me a little bit about, again, the history, how the CDC got involved, more specifically what they're doing. You've touched on a lot of it already, but just kind of fine-tune it if you could. Certainly. So the CDC has a dedicated office of over 150 scientists and health professionals that work on tobacco prevention and control. It's the Office on Smoking and Health. It became part of the CDC in the early 90s. Since that time, we have developed an evidence base through collecting science and surveillance of tobacco use and related behaviors, but also working with states and territories and tribes across the country in terms of informing evidence-based tobacco prevention and control. And in addition to that, we also work with several of our partners, including the Food and Drug Administration and non-government organizations such as the American Cancer Society, American Lung, American Heart, to really not only create, do the science on tobacco prevention and control, but to translate that to the public. prime example of that is CDC's Tips from Former Smokers campaign, um, which was the first federally funded mass media campaign warning people about the dangers of smoking. And that began in 2012, and it's now in its fifth year. And we found that it's highly effective and has helped promote smoking. Over 100,000 people have quit as a result of that campaign each year, and tens of millions have been informed about the adverse effects of smoking. And so that's a prominent component of what we do in terms of not only getting the science, but also ensuring that we use that science to help educate I salute your efforts, and I hope that you get more money so you can do even more work because this is just one of the major medical issues in our society. Dr. Brian King is Deputy Director of, for Research Translation in the Office on Smoking and Health with the United States Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. King, thank you so much for being with us. I really do appreciate it. And as um, things develop or if something should really 
come into the news regarding cigarette smoking, I'd like to call you back and get an update. I really would. So maybe we will do that. Certainly. Thanks for taking time to talk to me. You're welcome, sir. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.